0: The Ohio Redistricting Commission worked late into the night and produced gerrymandered maps. It's going to the courts. It's going to be ugly. And we'll be talking about that first up on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Leila Atassi, and Laura Johnston. And I am going to throw some provocative stuff at you on this question. Are you all ready? Yes, ma'am. As ready as you can be, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's begin. Did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and the other four Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission continue their alarming run of violating the Ohio Constitution with maps they approved in the middle of the night? Laura Johnston, lay on the details.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This does have has no Democratic support, but they don't care because it keeps a supermajority for the Republicans. So these maps will only be good for 4 years, and the new districts would likely award 62 of 99 House seats and 23 of 33 Senate seats to Republicans. That is more, obviously, than the breakdown of the state normally would have, but the Republicans say they, they really didn't have to pay attention to that part of the, uh, the Constitution and the voters' will, and that they just had to be in this ballpark of 54% to 81% of Republican uh, dominance.
0: Okay, so clearly Mike DeWine and Frank LaRose, Secretary of State, said they were troubled by this. They basically voted for something they know is not right. So, so let me ask you this. The, the state law about public officers says any person holding office in this state who willfully and flagrantly neglects to enforce the law or to perform any official duty imposed by the law is guilty of misconduct in office and can be removed. They have all violated the Constitution repeatedly. We, I mean, it's th- this isn't subjective. They didn't hit the deadline that is mandated in the Constitution, so they did not perform an official duty imposed by the law. DeWine and LaRose basically admitted yesterday that this map does not follow the Constitution. They're basically admitting they're not doing the official duty imposed upon by the law. Is this not evidence? that all these guys should be removed from office.
2: Okay, but, so this is Leila Tassi. Who would remove them? The Republican (laughs) supermajority?
0: No, no, I can tell you how that works, because I looked it up. You'd have to go out and get signatures from 15% of the people that that were voted in the last election, but it would not put it before the legislature. It would put it before the appellate court of the counties where these guys live. And look, look, this is a matter of law. This, This is not some subjective political fight. They have violated their duties in the Constitution over and over and over in this process. If this went to the appellate judge, how could they rule any other way than that they are guilty of misconduct in office and should be removed? I just don't see it. And if it went to the Supreme Court in an appeal, first, DeWine's son would have to recuse himself because he can't rule, but th- it's a matter of law. So, I mean, they have violated the Constitution. You can't do that. And I, you know, when the when you hear that people start saying we need a a new constitutional amendment to to make sure this never happens again, well, when you're out collecting signatures for that, why not collect the signatures to have them all removed for office because they're not doing their jobs?
2: So, what do you think would be the appetite for that among voters? Do you think that people would sign on to that petition? To, I mean, it's one thing to sign the petition saying that you are anti-gerrymandering because you can, if you're a Republican, you can envision a day when the pen will be in the hands of Democrats. But if you're being asked to sign a petition saying that, you know, your, your representatives could be removed from office that, I mean, that's a totally different, you're, you're, you're handing away your power.
0: You need 674,000 signatures. You don't think if you went into the cities of Ohio, you could get 674,000 signatures. I mean, I, it, it seems like you could. That, that that's not that undoable. Look, they, they, there's no doubt they have abrogated their duties here. They have com- they basically have committed nonfeasance or malfeasance. They have willfully violated their oaths of office, their oath to uphold the Constitution, and they're they're visiting upon us all an unfair thing. Let me go another way. W- w- would there be a federal case that this is a civil rights violation of all of us? Because we're not getting a fair voting system. Mm. I mean, the the Ohio Constitution mandates a fair voting system. They're violating that. Violating Mm. our voting rights is a federal problem. Could that be taken up in federal court? You know, where where are the Sabo Chandras of the world that always champion these causes? (laughs)
2: This,
0: this, This is no longer something you can trust the elected officials of Ohio to do. They have all completely failed here. So, Get it into the courts, right? But,
3: but I wonder. I, this I, this is Lisa ahead. Garvin Lisa. here. Um, I, I, who's going to spearhead this drive? Is it Common Cause? Is it yeah, the right. League of Women Voters? I, I don't know. I don't really understand who's going to really carry that flag. It, it could be the Democratic Party.
0: I mean, the Democratic Party is looking to rebuild itself in Ohio. What better way to do it than to champion something like this? It would remove these guys from office. Look, I, I'm just they, they they failed. I mean, to 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 get up this morning. And see that they, they have completely failed the their duties to the citizens of Ohio and continued to to maintain a supermajority that does not match up to Ohio. Th- that's just not right. You can't, I have another question. You can't choose to, to follow parts of the constitution. You have to follow them all. Layla.
2: Should they be removed from office, how are they replaced? Is it by special election? Is there an appointment?
0: It's it's by whatever the law says. I didn't go into all that. I I imagine there's different ways of replacing the secretary of state, the governor, the the auditor, the House speaker, the Senate president. I mean, these are the five guys that would be that would be removed. And look, I, I just I defy you to argue with me that they have not failed their duties. I don't think you're going to find anyone here who's going to argue that you against. So so then so that so for everybody who's damaged by this, where is the rise up to remove them from office because they're not doing the jobs they're elected to do? Mm. Look, this is a good conversation. You're not hearing it anywhere else. I haven't seen anybody else suggest it. But but this is where the conversation should go. When you elect people to do things, and they don't do them, they should go. Look, look, think about it. I work for people, right? And if I knowingly violated the journalistic standards and, and started running stories that, that falsely um, libeled people and, and, and cost money, I'd be thrown out, right? The people you work for would say, you're not doing the job according to the prescribed duties. Well, we're the bosses of these guys. The voters are the bosses of these guys. They're not doing the job they were elected to do they should be
3: removed. But here's my fear. Come on, come I, on. I, <laughs> here's my fear. I, I here's my fear. I, okay, Go ahead. No,
1: no, go ahead, Laura. Go ahead, Lisa. I was no, going say, gonna... I don't.
0: Go. <laughs> Somebody go.
3: <laughs> go, Laura.
1: Okay. I was just going to say, I I I think that people would agree with you, but I just don't know that you're going to see that people care enough to do it. I feel like people think, The government is broken. It's always broken. No matter what I do, it's not going to be fixed. Obviously, we tried to get a fix here with gerrymandered districts. And look what happened. I just I feel like people are beat down. You know, they're they're beat down with COVID. And I just can't see people getting riled up about it. I think this is what we expected, which is really sad.
0: I'm the old guy on this podcast, and I'm not this cynical. I think people can rise up to take back control of their government from people who so willfully violate their duties. Lisa, what were you going to say?
3: Well, you know, and of course, this state is so heavily gerrymandered, I think that that a lot of Democrats just kind of shrug. I mean, look at some of the offices where Republicans run unopposed, you know, because they just know they can't win. My fear is that if, if we remove these guys from office, seeing the rightward shift of the GOP, we're likely to get some people that are worse, depending on how, you know, look. they replace them.
0: Although they'd be afraid. Look, Frank Jackson, the mayor of Cleveland, the mayor of Cincinnati, the mayor of Columbus, Armand Budish, the county executive, they're all leaders in this state that know that the Republicans just stuck it to the Democrats. They could lead this movement. They could be the ones saying, let's get a petition drive. Let's get the signatures out there. Let's put these guys on trial for failing and use their own words against them because they were very, very open about how they were violating the Constitution. I mean, that that's the problem is you'd be using their own words against them. Anyway, you heard it here first. Let's see where this goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is Cabs owner Dan Gilbert's new plan for the land where he once promised Cleveland he would build a gleaming standalone casino? Layla Tassi, I, for people that don't have long memories, this this does just kind of rubs me the wrong way. The people of Ohio went to the polls, voted for Dan Gilbert's casino gambling amendment to change the Constitution because the legislature wouldn't legalize gambling, promising all along that Cleveland would have this standalone beautiful casino, bought this land. I think he put out pretty pictures of what it would look like and then built what he said was a temporary casino in the Higbee building. And it we're never going to get our standalone casino now he's got a vision for this land that's interesting, but you wonder how real it is given that we never got the casino. So what's the vision?
2: Right. And I really loved how obvious it was in this story that reporter Eric Heisig was annoyed by how many questions they had no answers for at this virtual press event the other day. The overall plan is to add thousands of homes, offices, and other development over the coming decades to about 130 acres of property along the Cuyahoga River near downtown. That includes the collision bend area of the river near Tower City portions of canal road that area you were talking about the hope is to create another neighborhood through the development over the next 25 to 30 years the the ceo of bedrock kofi bonner said bedrock's goal is to lead in making cleveland quote a true 18 hour city alive and vibrant beyond the traditional work hours and uh you know bedrock they own tower city center they recently renovated the May Company building near Public Square. They own 30 percent of the land n- needed for its for this plan here, but they said that they're going to work with landowners and other companies to put it together. They were talking about the upgrades and, and repairs to public infrastructure like roads that they would need to do as well. They talked about tapping into that million, trillion dollar infrastructure bill that's pending in Congress. But you know, their spokespeople didn't provide any answers on what infrastructure improvements the area needs to encourage this development and, and how much affordable housing it could see being a part of it, even though these were topics that were kind of bantered about during the news conference. So, you know, I mean, I guess still, you know, the, the mayor was a part of this and other city officials. The plan does seem to dovetail with Vision for the Valley, which is this roadmap for development and investment in that area, um, you know, surrounding this eight-mile section of the Cuyahoga River. And the Cleveland City Planning Commission in July adopted that plan uh, earlier. So, um, I don't know. It seems to have some city buy-in. Uh, well, well city
0: buy-in from a guy who'll be out of office. In I know four he months, he so, he
2: kind of couched his support in that, too. like this will be in the hands of the next administration to you know babysit it. So I don't know. yeah we'll you're right. Just, a lot of things have come through. You know, there's been a lot of ideas for that for that property.
3: Well,
0: and they were nagged on their biggest promise. I mean, people voted for that amendment with the idea they were getting a standalone casino and entertainment district and it completely collapsed. They were, I mean, part of the reason was John Kasich, after people voted, then created unilaterally the Racinos, which competed with casinos. Although, the, you know, Gilbert originally owned those. He sold the whole thing off, but, but we never got it. I, I do wonder if this is more of, hey, There's a lot of infrastructure money. We own a bunch of land. Let's get the infrastructure money Mm -hmm. so the public pays for fixing up our land and then we'll develop it. Uh, You would want to see more details before you allow any of that money to be invested there.
2: That's right. You know, and before the casino idea, remember that's four four city enterprises wanted to build the convention center and medical mart there. And before that, the area was potentially the site for the Rock Hall, and, uh, you know, which now, of course, sits on on Lake Erie. So, We'll see. It seems we to should be in limbo forevermore. <laughs>
0: but we should point out Dan Gilbert is the single biggest developer of real estate in Detroit. And a lot of people have have thought he should bring some of that prowess to Cleveland. And maybe this is his answer. OK, I will. I'll, I'll develop this prime riverfront land. So we'll have to see what happens. It's an interesting idea. You're listening to This Week in the CLE what is the seismic shift in the local radio landscape that was announced Wednesday? Where will people have to, who have not yet turned to podcasting for their listening go for their NPR fix? Lisa Garvin, I think more and more people are defecting from terrestrial radio to listen to podcasts like this one. But for people that do count on NPR, it's about to get very confusing.
3: And reading this story and following along, I got a big heaping helping of deja vu and not in a good way. Um, As some people may know, um, I was the morning edition anchor and news reporter for the NPR affiliate in Houston, KUHF, that kind of went through a similar situation. So what's happening is yesterday, the uh, Kent State University Board of Trustees voted to approve the merger with IdeaStream. So what happens, and it takes effect on October 1st. So you have to kind of follow along because things are moving around. So right now, WKSU is at 89.7. Their operations are gonna move to IdeaStream. What happens is KTSU will change to WCPN, which is currently at 90 point something on the dial. So. WKSU becomes WCPN. The WCPN signal moves to 89.7 and a repeater station, which is 104.9, which is where WCLV, the classical station, is now. So WCLV will move to 90.3 FM which is actually a better signal. It'll be a stronger signal and reach more classical music listeners. It's a 50,000 watt uh, station. Um, The merger, they say, eliminates 90% of program overlap between WKSU and WCPN and saves costs. The, The combined staff will be 150 people, 40 people in the newsroom, which is a little bit suspect to me. I I don't know that they can maintain that. They do say that the WKSU staff will be offered jobs and they will be able to, this is important, keep their public public employee retirement system benefits and their tuition benefits. But from what I understand, and this wasn't in the story yesterday, but I think it was in a previous story that all staffers will be working out of Playhouse Square. So, you know, they're talking, yeah, so they're talking about 40 news people in Cleveland and they want to cover like Summit, Portage, Yaga, you know, you know, the the multi-county area. I just don't see how that's going to happen. If I can digress just a little bit, uh, KUHF, my alma mater in Houston, they went through a similar thing. What they did though, was they bought the tower and the license from KTRU, which was run by Rice University. It was a student run station. So KUHF moved their classical programming over to this new frequency and then you know expanded their news on the original frequency but then a few years later they fired all of the classical music announcers except for one and now the classical music signal is only on hd2 or streaming so their big plans you know went for naught, which makes me nervous about this merger well,
0: I, I do think the Cleveland Orchestra and things like the Apollo Fire, th- there is support for classical music here. the 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 tr- The trouble here is that you're going to have to get people who are in the habit of listening to 90.3 WCPN right. to switch to a new new frequency, new station and and mean and then get people who are used to listening to the classical music on the station they're on to move over to 90.3 it's a mess. I hope they're able to maintain the 40 person newsroom because we always need more journalists. I do think you're right that's going to be challenging especially given how many people are working from home now. They've lost their commuting audience and we've seen the in incredible growth of podcasting which is i think sucking mm-hmm. away more and more of their listeners so it's a, it's a confusing mess they're they're going to have to really do the messaging to keep their audience come with them but ultimately it sounds like it's a it's really a boon for efficiency it might save money and hopefully mm-hmm. it'll it'll promote more journalism in northeast I, ohio i, I would wish like, them well
3: i would like to believe that and i do wish them well but i mean kuhf is the sole NPR station in the greater Houston area, which is four times the size of Cleveland. Their newsroom is 10 people. So I, 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 I'm I keeping my wow. fingers crossed, but prior experience tells me otherwise. So I hope everything goes well. And I'm glad hope- that WCLV moves to a stronger signal because I listen to them every day.
0: Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE How did Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish move to slow the coronavirus Wednesday? And does his move have any teeth in it? Lauren Johnston, last year, he proposed something that did have teeth in it. This one, not so much.
1: No, no teeth behind this mask. Just a suggestion that everybody should be wearing masks everywhere, basically, indoors. And that includes vaccinated and unvaccinated people. If you're indoors, Armand Budish wants you to wear a mask. It's an advisory, though, so it just it has no enforcement power and unlike last year when he did did put forward a mandate it ended up not happening because the state circum you know superseded and basically mike dewine put on a statewide mandate so he didn't have to do it but he is allowed under state law even with the you know mike dewine can't put a state law on to say that there's a mask mandate but armin budish could he didn't really explain why he wasn't
0: yeah, well, I mean, he needs the county council approval. So last right. year he had proposed that to the county council. The county council ended up tabling it because of Mike DeWine. Yeah. And he didn't explain why he didn't take that route this time. It, it was strange. Maybe he just doesn't want to take the flack because it's so politicized. I mean, there is this argument and Leila Atassi has strong feelings about this, that you get more cooperation by by calling on people's better angels to do things mm-hmm. than you do by forcing. <laughs> How's that, that um, working?
2: Yeah, (laughs) that's those are where my strong feelings come into it. But keep going, Chris. I want to hear more of your thoughts. No, I'm turning it over to you.
0: Go ahead and make your case.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, no. Yeah, right. I I, I disagree completely with this idea that let's just leave it to, to people. You know, people know what they need to do and let's just ask them sweetly. I'm so sick of this. Budish just needs to be a leader here. Science is on his side. Issue the mandate. Stop being such a wuss. Between this and his weak plan to offer 100 bucks to workers who get the shot— why not just pay the coronavirus to go away? That would be just as effective as asking people to get the shot and, oh, please wear a mask. And we strongly advise it. Stop already. God, I, how I, long are we going to be in this I, mess? I,
0: I hope the listeners to this podcast understand that the way Layla is arguing here, this is the way she argues on behalf of the people <laughs> she edits. And for her stories, this is my life when she thinks I'm out of my head wrong well, on a topic.
1: Can, can I add here the boo Said he was looking at the possibilities of a mandate for county employees, but that he has more than 30 unions to work with. So maybe he just doesn't want to put on a mandate for the whole county or ask for one because he doesn't want to deal with the fight that he's going to have with his employee unions.
0: Except, Laura, it's a lot easier to win that fight with the union if part of your argument is all of the non represented employees already are under that True. umbrella. That, that because you're trying to do the group. So, by not doing the other employees, he actually weakens his case in those negotiations. Uh, and it's another faux pas decision by our Cuyahoga County executive. <laughs> you're listening to This Week in the CLE. In 2017, all of the Cleveland City Council candidates who came in first in the primary won in the general election runoffs, except for one. So is there any hope for all of the talented challengers facing off with incumbents this time around? Leila Tassi, you you and your team looked at the history. What do you see?
2: Yeah, when Courtney looked at the 2017 numbers, she was really surprised to discover that fact that every candidate who led in the primary went on to win the general. The one exception to that was T.J. Dow who held a razor-thin lead over Bashir Jones during the 2017 primary. And then when all was said and done in the general, he had lost the lead by so few votes that it triggered an automatic recount. So we were really curious to see what, if anything, those races back then could tell us about what to expect this time around in the, in the four races that we've kind of isolated as the most competitive, which is Ward 4, Uh, Eric Walker versus Deborah Gray. That is Ken Johnson's ward. Ward five, Richard Starr versus Dolores Gray, who is coincidentally or not, actually, Deborah Gray's twin sister. Ward seven, T.J. Dow versus Stephanie House. And Ward 12, Tony Brancatelli versus Rebecca Moore. So which of those you want to talk about, Chris? (laughs)
0: I, I, um, look, all of them are interesting because all of them I mean, we know there are a lot more votes cast in the general election, and these are very close margins. It's just surprising that the last time the people had the lead, mostly maintained the lead. So, what is what does a Rebecca Mar have to do to take out the entrenched incumbent? Brancatelli. I mean she she did really well. I don't think yes, people expected Brancatelli to have that serious a challenge. She doesn't need to make up much ground, right. but pretty much nobody did last time except for Bashir Jones.
2: I think Ward 12, Brancatelli-Moore, this is my favorite race because I think these candidates are so well-matched for a showdown. Brancatelli beat Moore by 78 votes in the primary. That's so close. The second and third place finishers got 250 votes between them. If we can reliably say that any vote for a challenger in that race is a vote against Brancatelli, Moore is in pretty good shape. But That doesn't account for the fact that between the primary and the general in 2017, we saw a 90 percent increase in voter turnout in this ward. So there are plenty of people who could show up to vote in November who didn't bother with the primary. And that, you know, that very dramatic increase in voter turnout back then, I think, was attributable to the fact that that year Brangatelli was unopposed in the primary. So people didn't show up to the polls in that ward. Still, there was a mayoral primary going on and voters... Still blew it off. (laughs) That, I believe, speaks to how little interest Clevelanders had in what they viewed as a pretty boring mayoral race in 2017, with Frank Jackson seeking a fourth term. This year could be very different. The mayoral showdown between Kevin Kelly and Justin Bibb is just so much more exciting. And I think it might be enough to influence voter turnout in big ways for all of these races. So that's one of those wild cards. We don't really know how interest in the mayoral campaign this year. Is going to affect voter turnout for city council races.
0: Although we should point out the voter turnout in the primary this time was much higher than last time across the city. There was more interest in this. But for what the reason you said, I mean, last time it was Frank Jackson against a bunch of pretenders. This time there were a lot of very interesting choices for voters to make. I, I do wonder if T.J. Dow can reverse what happened last time and overcome Stephanie Howes. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with T.J. Dow. He wasn't a very good councilman. But there is history there of the second-place finisher coming back. That's right. They were within a handful of votes. Right. And he knows that
2: better than anyone. He was the loser to that second-place finisher. And, And what's interesting here is that both of these candidates have held this seat before. This is the seat vacated by Bashir Jones, who decided to run for mayor this time. And, you know, yeah, it was the outlying case in 2017 where the candidate who led didn't didn't win in the primary, didn't win the general. And that's because they were down to 13 votes. I mean, that also speaks to the lower voter turnout, if 13 votes is what makes a council person. This year, 560 people voted for the third and fourth place finishers. So those votes are up for grabs. And that's more than either House or Dow got on their own. And of course, we typically see a significant uptick in the voter turnout by the time the generals roll around. So They've got to be out there competing for those voters that didn't bother to show up on Tuesday.
0: The other one that I want to talk about, we got to know Richard Starr through the project we did called "A Greater Cleveland. You got to know him quite well through the Boys and Girls Club that we based that reporting on. Um, a passionate guy, beloved yes. in the community. I was surprised actually that he didn't come out first. He came, it was very close, but he he's got work to do if he's going to come back. What happened in 2017 in that word? Because he ran then too. He
2: did. What's interesting is that yeah, he ran against longtime incumbent Phyllis Cleveland, and that was also a three-way primary. And Starr got 42%, and Cleveland got fifty-two percent. In the general that year, her lead widened when it was just the two of them in the runoff. Now, now Starr just finished up a very tight primary with incumbent Dolores Gray, who is herself a newcomer to Cleveland politics, having only been appointed to counsel upon Phyllis Cleveland's departure earlier this year. They're, they're only two points apart, and for the longest time on Tuesday... Star and and Gray were separated by a single vote. <laughs> In 2017, however, Phyllis Cleveland was a long entrenched incumbent with a really strong base. The fact that Star came so close to unseating her was really notable. Dolores Gray was Cleveland's handpicked successor, but that doesn't necessarily mean she commands the base. So we'll see. I mean, there's there is a lot of opportunity for both of them to uh to capture the the rest of the you know to to get to, to eke it out here.
0: <laughs> okay, good stuff. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We've talked at length about the supply chain problems created in all sorts of industries by the pandemic. And what is Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown doing to make sure such problems don't interrupt the flow of needed medicines in the future. Lisa Garvin, Sherrod Brown's been active, introducing all sorts of stuff. This is this is important, especially for a region that is that the biggest part of the economy is healthcare. What's he doing?
3: Yeah, Senator Brown introduced a bill with it, which the title of which is a mouthful, promoting readiness and ensuring proper active pharmaceutical ingredient reserves of essential medicines. Acronym PREPARE. So basically what they want to do is create a list of generic drugs and build up domestic manufacturing of the ingredients used to make up those drugs. Currently, most of these ingredients are made in China and India. And during the pandemic, we saw supply chain issues and how immediately that affected things like masks and making medicines. So this bill would create a new federal entity within the Department of Health and Human Services to manage an emergency supply of pharmaceutical ingredients. Um, The bill appears to have bipartisan support. A similar bill is ready to be introduced in the House. So it sounds like hopefully Congress can get together on this thing.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how much uh, manufacturing wants to bring back into the United States because of all the supply chain problems. I and mean, we're well into this pandemic and, and you still can't get lots of stuff. I mean, store shelves or you, you walk through any store and, and a third of them are empty. Uh, medicine is something you really shouldn't be playing games with, counting on counting on supply chains from other countries. Good thing for Sherrod Brown to see that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Hot conversation. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast. Tomorrow's Friday. We'll wrap up the week of news.